Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, an Australian company has used DNA from the long extinct woolly mammoth to help create a modern day mammoth meatball. And while it certainly is an attention grabber and no one's actually tasted it, it's all to raise awareness about a different way to produce and consume meat. Our history, the history of humanity, has been written in ink. And yet we rarely recognize just how important a substance it has been. We meet a world-renowned Toronto ink maker, Jason Logan, subject of a documentary called The Color of Ink, to talk about how it works and how he works with ingredients forged in the wild to draw color from just about anything. Play it again, Siri should be the new term. We look into how artificial intelligence is increasingly hitting the right notes as a composer of music. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How will it impact music as we know it? First, we look into a huge day for Canada and space exploration. Astronaut Jeremy Hansen was introduced today in Houston as part of the Artemis II NASA crew, and he will become the first Canadian to orbit the moon, to travel to the dark side of the moon. It will be the first crewed moon mission in five decades, set to lift off in November 2024. We celebrate the day and find out how Canada became such an important part of the Artemis program. You know, I don't usually get up, I don't usually try to pay too, too much attention to the news on Monday morning, mostly because I finished late Friday, so it feels like the weekend's really abbreviated if I start cluing in right first thing in the morning. You know, I'll look at the news on Saturday, look at the news on Sunday, see what's going on, see what might be fun to talk about today, but usually I try to leave Monday morning alone, at least early morning. I made an exception today for this. He's a master of science in physics, an F-18 pilot and a Canadian astronaut, your mission specialist, Jeremy Hansen. Yeah, it's NASA Administrator Bill Nelson this morning in Houston at the Johnson Space Center announcing that Jeremy Hansen, Canadian astronaut, would be part of the crew of four, including three Americans, as part of the Artemis II crew. You must have heard it today. Uh, he will be the first Canadian in deep space, the first Canadian to orbit the moon. Uh, Artemis, of course, will be the first time that we've returned to the moon in five decades, and they revealed the crew of four today, including Reed Wiseman, Victor Glover, Christina Cook, and, of course, Jeremy Hansen, the lone Canadian. Uh, again, he'll be the first Canadian to venture into deep space aboard Artemis II. And he says for decades, thousands and thousands of Canadians have risen to the challenge of bringing real value to the international partnership involved with the U.S. in space exploration. Our scientists, our engineers, the Canadian Space Agency, the Canadian Armed Forces, across government, all of our leadership working together under a vision to take step by step and all of those have added up to this moment where a Canadian is going to the moon with our international partnership and it is glorious. I am left in awe of being reminded what strong leadership setting big goals with a passion to collaborate and a can-do attitude can achieve and we are going to the moon together. Let's go. Yeah, it was a great moment. You know, I'm used to watching those announcements. The Canadian flags were up. Uh, the Minister of Francois Philippe Champagne was there. But of course, it was all about 
Jeremy Hansen, 47-year-old from London, Ontario, uh, spent some time in Ingersoll and during his high school years. He's a colonel and CF-18 pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He's been an astronaut since 2009, so this has been a long wait uh, for his first journey into space and what a journey it's going to be. Uh, the Artemis II will blast off as early as November of 2024. So I was really excited about this today. Someone who is just as over the moon as I was is Orbax Thomas. He's a science communicator at the University of Guelph, and he joins me now. Orbax, thank you. Absolutely no problem. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a buzzing with excitement all day long. People have finally realized that there'll be a Canadian going to the moon. Yeah, I mean, it felt very real today. I, I know we've talked about it in theory for quite a while since the mm -hmm. whole Artemis thing began. But the idea that there, you know, there was Jeremy Hansen up on stage, Canadian flags. It it felt like Canada was really part of something that we're not often a part of. I mean, not to downplay our role, but this is a no, big No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was sitting there watching the announcement on NASA's YouTube channel, just like everybody else. And it, it, it kind of, it was almost one of those chills moments, you know, where you've got the whole astronaut core is there. All of our astronauts are there. Like you said, the flags come up and it's like, wow, you know, we're really part of this. This is actually happening. Yeah, it's well earned, though. I mean, I, th I think the minister pointed it out. Jeremy Hansen pointed it out. We've been part of this for a long time. We're contributing yeah. to this in a, in a pretty uh, fundamental way. So it made sense for a Canadian to be part of this first crewed mission, at least to orbit the moon. Yeah, and it's a long time coming. You know, our involvement in the, the space program tangentially can be argued goes back to the original Apollo programs. Uh, but the Canadian Space Agency as a whole, you know, uh, th this production of the Canada Arm is something that we kind of, I don't know if we as Canadians, we we downgrade its its place in sort of astronomical history. But I mean, it's on our money. It's a huge achievement that, that we've made. And, you know, without it, a lot of stuff wouldn't have been capable of happening. And so for those of your listeners who might not know, Canada Arm 3 is going to be part of this gateway project, which is supposed to be the orbiting science platform that will be around going around the moon. That's going to act as a relay for the Orion to drop people off and then as a relay to deliver them down to whatever the lunar base looks like on the surface. But Canarm 3 is going to be up there. Not only, not only will it be once operational, will it be helping to guide ships in? Will it be helping to bring payloads off of ships and putting them onto the gateway? But it's actually going to help build the gateway itself. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, when you think about it in those terms, it is it is remarkable. We're we're on, we're on the cusp of something really quite incredible to witness. Tell me a bit about Artemis two because this you know our, the first Artemis was 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 non crewed and it right. did that same orbit, and now we're going to send a crew up, uh, including obviously uh, a Canadian. Yeah, you know what makes this 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 trip different than other trips, I guess, is is kind of the big question, and it's funny. I think we we always just kind of forget how far away the moon actually is. The ISS is the International Space Station is about 400 kilometers away. You know, it's a few hours away. It, it's basically I'm in Guelph. It's basically the distance to Windsor, right. uh, where I grew up. Uh, so it, it's kind of funny. It's it's that distance away. It, it and it's a straight shot right up. Whereas the Moon is 400,000 kilometers away. It, it's a, it's a ways. It takes a few days to get there instead of a few hours. Right. So the actual Orion spacecraft itself holds four astronauts. And this is the largest of that kind of spacecraft that's ever existed. So to send it with that huge payload, they've built the largest rocket that's ever existed, the SLS. So, you know, there's a, a big slew of, of astronomical firsts that are taking place here. So with Artemis 1, we found out that that craft can be launched and that that craft will safely go do its translunar orbits and come back home. Now we're making the big step of actually putting people into this thing and sending it skyward 
to do a lunar orbit and to come back. So that's the big push for Artemis 2 is to actually make sure that this delivery system, this spacecraft, will take people safely and return them home. And then, of course, the third stage is going to be building this orbiting lunar space station and the lunar base itself. And and Jeremy Hatson is is a, is an interesting. I mean, there were four different astronauts who were available to do this. Jeremy Hatson seems to make a lot of sense. He's been an astronaut since two thousand and nine, so he's been waiting his turn for a long time. Uh, what did you make of the choice, and what what will he be doing? Well, I, I I'm not sure the specifics of what he's contributing to the mission, but I do know that he's got a master's in physics. So I'm always pulling for any physicist to come through up there. I also know he's an F-15 fighter pilot as or well. 18, so yeah, I F-18, mean, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. So you you've got this this interesting combination of of you know dare I say it daredevilry. Fighter pilots are, are an interesting group mixed with physicists, which is which is also another interesting group. So I'm sure he's bringing a lot of really interesting things to the table. Um, he seems like a great ambassador for not only the space program, but the Canadian space program as well. From London, Ontario, only like an hour and a half away from me. And I even heard that he grew up or spent some time in Ingersoll That's as well. Right. For yeah. those of you who are closer to, to that sort of area. So that hits, hits home to me, having grown up in a rural area near Windsor. Yeah, he's like he's like a chip off. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a ton of, I mean, there's so much to do between now and then. Today was the glory, but there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, today, you know, and we've got over a year to actually to for, for them to figure this out. And, you know, it's an interesting project because really the eyes of the world are on it from from every angle. Right. I mean, they, they've made a point to, to say that they're going to the moon and that everybody it's an inspiration to everyone. So, I mean, we're, we're literally looking at something that I think has to go through a lot of checkpoints to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that this this does work. Uh, and we saw it with Artemis One with the with the what seemed like constant delays on the launch pad, right? They are, are are literally crossing every T and dotting every I to make sure that this thing goes and it does it safely. Uh, Orbax, though, it, it, I mean, you work a lot with with younger folk on 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 stuff like this. This must be. I mean, I was excited, and I'm not going to be studying physics anytime soon. This must be really exciting for a whole generation who've never, you know, they haven't had the space shuttle program for a while now. We've had the ISS, but it's not quite the same. This is going to bring in a whole new generation of people to be able to watch space exploration unfold in front of them. It is. And, you know, it's an interesting thing working with with kids in STEM. There's there's certain unifying ideas that excite young people about science. Right. One is rockets. One is dinosaurs. One is things blowing up or lasers. And one is space. And the exciting thing about space that I that I found is that space very seldom with young people seems like a solitary endeavor. Space is something that if you're interested, you know, families, friends get together, go outside and look up at the stars. You know, I think, you know, ever since there's been human beings, human beings have looked up into the sky and wondered what's going on. And I find that to me, it's so exciting because it appeals to those that are very rigorous, mathematical, physics oriented or whatever, but it also just appeals to people who love the beauty of, of just not knowing. Right. So I find that it's an exciting thing to unify not just young people, but it's an easy way for parents and families of STEM-oriented youth to support them in their studies, uh, because it's something that everybody can get excited about without knowing the intricate details. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, STEM, mm-hmm. if, 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 if anyone's wondering. Yeah, it's been since 72, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I was born in 70, so I kind of grew up in that legacy of, of, of the moon landings and people talking about them. And so to me, this is really exciting, too, because it has been 50 years. I know. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And, you know, I so I was born in 77, so I'm much, much younger than you are. Indeed. But uh, the 
<laughs> but for you know, I grew up in sort of the shuttle era. So so you know, watching watching those shuttle launches was a constant thing. Um, and an exciting thing that we we thought was going to continue. And and suddenly, you know, there was a shift or a move towards sending large scale scientific payloads up instead of people, which makes sense. You know, that's how we got Hubble, that's how we got uh, the Voyager projects. That's how we you know, more recently the James Webb and Lucy, and even the the new one coming up, the Juice Mission, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. That'll take eight years to go to Jupiter to explore those moons to see if they're habitable for life. So we moved away from human beings going up, but there's a real element of human drama that's involved in space exploration. I mean, look at Star Trek and Star Wars, the thing that inspired many generations of young people to get into science and to get into space exploration. All of that is the human element of us as explorers, as us as passionate people who want to learn about the world and what's out there, what could be out there. That's exciting to me. This mission, Artemis, I mean, it's been compared to Apollo a lot, and certainly many scientific advances came out of the whole Apollo mission time at NASA. Uh, But once again, I mean, we're trying to do something much bigger than Apollo this time around. To me, working with young people in this, when you put the human element in there, and especially having this added... this added incentive of having a Canadian as part of this group, working with Canadian young people, they see they can see themselves reflected in this, right? It's the representation. It's seeing a human face to it and saying, you know, this could be me someday up there in space and working. And realistically, you know, we're, we're what, a few years off of this actually happening. We're a few more years off of that. And so this young generation that's happening now, by the time they graduate university, could directly be working for Artemis or doing science on the moon. And that's an exciting thing to me, right? The worry that I have often, and I, I've spoken to young people about this, and it, I don't know, and maybe it's an unfounded worry, but I often wonder, that you know, in this world of Marvel movies and of high-end CG, does the impact of space have as much gravity to it? Right. Does it resonate with young people when they see this? Because again, when I was growing up, or you much, much earlier, you know, I, we'd get these books or you'd see images on, on PBS or, or whatever, and, and you were like, this was real. This is real space. This is what it looks like. It's not, in, you know, a crummy Star Trek uh, version of it where you see or Flash Gordon where you see the strings hanging in the background or anything else. This was real. And the, the exciting thing, you know, that even though CG and... The, you know, the films as we see them today are much, much better. I think and I hope that the reality of it still resonates with young people, that they still look at these and they, they, they can tell the difference between what's fake and what's real. And seeing a real Earth rise from the dark side of the moon is something that that's fundamentally inspiring, isn't it? I don't know. Abs- I hope so. Absolutely. No, I, th- I mean, the, the original science fiction movie. I mean, it, it, science fiction, the, like the original yeah, sci-fi right? visuals are those visuals of Neil Armstrong and so on, I always thought. Yeah. And it's interesting this time around, it feels, even though the political environment out there isn't exactly rosy, this one feels less Cold War-ish, right? I mean, there's Canadian absolutely. going along yeah. for the fir- on the first time, one quarter of that crew is not American. And that's interesting. Yeah, I feel I feel this this one carries with it a sense of hope. And maybe that's a construct over the last few years that have seemed it seemed so hopeless for a few years now. Yeah. This does, you know, I, to me anyway, I find that something like this, the most exciting thing is that these these groups of people can work together to create these incredible things and to create these incredible missions and to still explore as as humanity. Not as America, not as Canada, not as NASA, not as the CSA, but together as a group, right? And and to me, that's the most exciting thing that you can you can you can see that people are working as a global species rather than just as individuals. I don't know. 
Maybe I, I'm just I, an, I an old man who's got a uh, hope for the future, but you know, I, younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Orvax, thank you so much for your time today. We'll we'll keep in touch as this unfolds. Yeah, no problem. Happy to do it. This was created by artificial intelligence, not musicians at all. It was a key text. You put in something like, write me a song that sounds like this, and this is what it spits out. This one is a rising synth is playing an arpeggio with a lot of reverb. Did I pronounce that right? It is backed by pads, sub-bass line, and soft drums. That's what it is. You enter it and it spits it out. It's from something called Music LM, which Google created. It's not available for public use because there's some issues with uh, copyright, but it has that on its website as part of Google research. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about this half hour, artificial intelligence creating music. Good, bad, both. Before we get there, though, my question for you tonight was about weird food, strange food that you've eaten over the years, because we're going to talk about the woolly mammoth meatball later in the show. Now, this no one's actually tasted this thing. It was done for other reasons, but it got me thinking about strange food. Richard says, the strangest food I ever tried was octopus, and I didn't like it. It tasted kind of like some kind of meaty sponge. Uh, Trev in Central Alberta says, uh, I ate raw catfish served whole with the head attached. I'll never forget that. I wouldn't either. Uh, yeah, NYK in Coquitlam says, when I was about 12 or 13, my mom fed my cousin and myself a plate full of fried fancy mushrooms, as she called them. Turns out what she had fed us was fried cow brains. And it only became apparent to us because my cousin and me overheard my aunt arguing with my mom that you can't feed someone something and tell them what they are eating is something completely different. Heck, I'm in my late 50s and I still cringe every now and then just thinking about it. Like, yeah, that, that those all qualify. Uh, keep them coming. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight is the text line. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Let me know who you are and where you are, and the strangest food you've had, and why. What was it? What did it taste like? Let me know, and we'll get to that woolly mammoth meatball a little later in the show. Well, you know, speculation that computers might compose music has been around for a very, very long time. It was being written about back in the fifties. But, you know, over time, musicians have used computers, right? Lots of bands over the years have used all kinds of stuff, programming to make music. But with AI now, with advances in artificial intelligence, we talk about chat GPT and all that stuff. There have been some real advances in just how capable machines are to make music. I mean, they can't hear, but they understand rules and there are a lot of rules in music, right? So it's gotten quite good at making music and it's getting better and better. So is it a threat to music creators? Is there a way they can use it to their advantage? Is it good? Is it bad? I mean, every time something new comes along, we worry a little bit about it. Here's another uh, sample of Music LM. That's Google's one. And this is just, you just enter a text, right? I want to hear something that sounds like this. Have a listen. This is called a fusion of reggaeton and electronic dance music with a spacey otherworldly sound. goes on to say it should have an otherworldly sound that induces the experience of being lost in space and the music would be designed to evoke a sense of wonder and awe while being danceable. And that was created by a machine. So what should we make of all of this? Joining me now to explain is Shelley Palmer, a professor of advanced media and residence at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. He's also a composer and CEO of the Palmer Group, a tech strategy and solutions consulting practice. Uh, Shelley, thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure. How are you? 
I'm well. This is a really, I mean, I, I love music and the ideas, the interface between AI and music seems like a really interesting thing, principally because of how fast it's moving. But the idea of algorithmic music and musicians using computers, there's nothing new there. No, nothing at all. By the way, music is incredibly algorithmic. And I think that's what people don't want to admit. It's an emotional communicator and people are always talking about how they feel. Music makes them feel a certain way or pieces of music have a certain feel or groove. But in practice, what gives a piece of music its feel is very, very, very rule-based. If you look at a straight up one, four, five chord progression, which is one of the most popular chord progressions in pop music ever, if you want to do that in reggae or rock or pop, the, the way you would take the exact same notes and make them feel like one of those styles is by following the rules that make that style. And so the rules are well understood by every single musician who's ever been told, okay, we're going to do this like it. We're doing this song, reggae. We're doing this song, bossa nova. We're doing this song as a meringue. We're doing this song as like, you know, pop rock and roll. We're going to sing happy birthday in the style of Elvis. It's like, these are rule-based. We're doing a Beach Boys thing. Let's sing happy birthday like the Beach Boys. Okay. The vocal harmony is totally defined. The way the drums are going to be tuned and the way they're going to be played, totally defined. How the bass guitar, how the guitar and how any possible keyboard sound, that's going to have a Wurlitzer keyboard. It's going to, it's like an electric piano from the sixties that everybody, like there's really specific stuff that makes it that. So to teach a computer to do this, it was obvious it was going to be the first thing to go. Like artwork is interesting because that requires like, it's looking at pixels and brushstrokes or whatever. Music? Come on, man. This has rules. Now, by the way, art has rules too. If you want to paint an impressionist painting, I want to do a graphic in the style of Keith Haring. I want to do Picasso. You can, I mean, these individuals have very well understood styles, which are rule-based. So when you start thinking about AI, what are you asking the artificial intelligence to do? Follow the rules. Which it loves, right? I mean, that's the whole point. But it's great at. Doesn't know what it's doing, just does it. I've, that's what's fantastic. Well, I find so, you know, I don't play a musical instrument. I'll confess to my ignorance. So it's all magical to me, but, but it doesn't have an ear and yet, it, yet it, yet it does. So, I mean, it follows the rules. It knows what it's doing. People love music and, and music should be loved and enjoyed by all. That's the greatest thing about music, but you're, you're giving people way too much credit. It's like the AI has actual advantages over certain people who let's just say, try to make music. Right. But, in practice, what I love about it, and uh, not Ben, not to be, not to be too philosophical here, my mother and father met at Juilliard. They owned music stores. They were music educators. Right. My dad led the Air Force Band of the 504th Air Wing, and when they got out, they were two music teachers in Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, and they they opened a little music studio to teach after school. And my earliest memories are being in that music studio in a playpen. So I, my first music educators were my parents. And I learned to play and ultimately became a professional composer, producer, probably because mom and dad were you know, pretty musical. And, and I, got, I was a member of the Lucky DNA Club on that one. At the end of the day, I spent 50,000 hours at this point in my life practicing performance skill. It actually separated me from a lot of my peers because I had spent so much time practicing because technical superiority is the key to artistic freedom prior to this. Now, what I love about this and what I think people hate about it, but what I love is that if you can imagine something, oh, I want Led Zeppelin to meet Taylor Swift at Willie Nelson's house and I want them to do a cover of a Rolling Stones song. That sounds like 
total nonsense. You'd have trouble trying to put those musical styles together, even if you had a lot of skills and the ability to do it from a rule-based perspective, you'd still have trouble figuring out how to get that done. And it may sound terrible, but it may sound amazing. Right. So the ability for someone with no musical skills, but a musical imagination, someone who hasn't practiced four hours a day from the time they were four years old, but loves music and loves to emote using music, loves to dance, loves to be part of it. This empowers those people. I get why professional musicians and professional artists and professional everything who have put the time in are really sad about this because somehow it feels like the people with just an imagination are cheating. I don't think they are. And I think that's really, really bad. Like music is for everyone to enjoy. Music is for everyone to feel. It's it's a universal language. You could have kids in a room who are from five years old to 15 years old, they have nothing in common, not shoes, not technology, not video games, not the media they like, but they can all sit down and play a song. They can all clap their hands to the beat. They can all agree on something that they can sing. That's amazing. And so that's the part that I feel like people are missing when they come down on this tech. Yeah, it's new. It is. You could call it cheating if you are someone like me, you spent thousands of hours in their life, you know, learning to play a whole bunch of different instruments. And, but I think I can say with, with fairly decent authority based on my musical background and the, I don't know, five, 6,000 pieces of music that I have on the air around the world on any given day. I applaud that. And I hope that every kid that ever wanted to make music sits down one of these programs and makes all the music they can describe. I just think it's amazing. How does it work? Because I understand it's sort of text prompt. You just said it earlier, you know, Taylor Swift and 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 Led Zeppelin hang out at Willie Nelson's house and compose, you know, compose, compose an Aerosmith song. Yes. And, and that's it, right? I mean, what is it? But what does the AI do with that information? There are many, many different ways that AI is used to generate music. And some work from a database or a corpus of existing work. Some are rule-based where it they know the rules only, and they are using those rules to generate. So it, it depends on where on what program you're using. In the case of the music programs that are based uh, on generative pre-trained transformers like GPT-4, like specialized pre-trained transformer models at OpenAI, there you can write an application that will sit on top of this model that would allow you to interface with the model using text prompts. It's not required. You could do it a lot of different ways. You could, for example, have a, a tool that would allow you to input a piece of music for inspiration and say, I want to write a piece of write an original piece of music like this one. But you could also just start typing, depending on the interface, the description of what it is you want. And the way that programs work is, is wide and varied, but at the end of the day, they are looking at the rule base of the kinds of music that you are asking it to create. And depending on the sophistication of the model, they're going to deliver the best version they can. And you are going to tell it how well it did. And this will reinforce. So imagine the way you're training a puppy dog and the puppy does something good and you give it a biscuit and pat it on the head, go good dog. And then when it does something bad, you, you say bad dog and you rub your dog's nose in it and say, don't do that again. That's how you train an AI model. It's it, it's just like that. And they learn for all intents and purposes two ways. They either self-instruct, meaning they're doing unsupervised learning and there are models that work that way, or they work with what's known as reinforcement learning, as we've just described. And that 
the better way to, to think about it rather than the dog uh, being the feedback loop and, and getting good feedback is they start the way a toddler would pick up a rattle and try to eat it and bang it on its head and put it in its ear and then bang it on the floor and then throw it across the room. And all of which would help the toddler form an invariant model of the rattle in their head. Next time the toddler encounters a rattle, it may also try to eat it or maybe not. And over time, as we grow, we get to form these models in our head of what, what these objects are. That's the way that they train some of these models. The other way is they simply give it a set of instructions and they let it teach itself. The good news about music is that music is so rule-based that you there is a set of instructions. Right. How to sound like Beethoven, do the following. How to sound like Mozart, do the following. How to sound like Led Zeppelin, do the following. It's not maybe in everybody's wheelhouse to understand how to describe that, but all competent musicians, all competent composers and arrangers know how to describe these things. Where are and, we at in, in terms of in terms of just how good it's 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 got? Because I understand that someone in your shoes, for instance, would easily tell that it's not easily tell where the music has been composed, but it's getting progressively better at a pretty rapid rate. So uh, it's a good question, but I'm not sure it's the right question. The vast majority of the music that's professionally created is not hit songs. It's not the songs we sing. It's not the stuff on Spotify. Vast amount of music that's created professionally is under images. It's background music to TV shows. It's background music to radio shows. It's 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 music that creates ambience in a bar. I mean, it's it's not Taylor Swift. It's not no, the Beatles. It's, it's just, the soundtrack to everything else, right? It's, that, a, it's all around you. Yes, of and course. And so too. if you're going to have a chase scene and you say to the AI, I want a chase scene in the style of John Williams or in the style you name your composer, Henry Mancini or uh, Alan Silvestri, or you, you just name your composer. It doesn't matter who it is. It's going to do that. And if you're going to put sound effects on top and you're going to put dialogue on top, all you're really doing is feeling a pulse and maybe there's a thematic thing going on. The vast majority of that music is not meant to be listened to in a vacuum or independently. It's meant to enhance a larger experience of consuming a piece of video or listening to an audio recording. So this is where you're going to put all of this to good use. And yeah, someone schooled in the art may be able to listen to it and go, well, you know, that's not very good. By the way, p human beings who do that work for a living aren't necessarily always very good. Each piece is not like a hit song. It's just they're journeyman composers. These are the people that are going to be sad because this technology is free. That's going to change the music industry. Is it going to impact Taylor Swift's next album? No. Is it going to impact the, the anybody's next album? They might use it as an AI co-worker, an AI partner. So if you're trying to experiment, it's be the equivalent of taking a bunch of random cards and says, you know, play a B flat. Now, you know, play a G. Now, maybe you would have played those two together. Maybe you wouldn't. But in, in a row, maybe you wouldn't. But if you put a random card there, it's like, you know, okay, add, add a sharp nine chord underneath. Whatever it's going to be, it'll take you places you might not go. The thing is, if people think this is going to somehow replace Paul McCartney sitting on the edge of the stage with his guitar singing the song yesterday, they don't understand this tool set. This tool set is going to replace Shelley Palmer, which is me, called by someone and saying, I need a four minute sound library that's of a specific kind that's to go underneath my little industrial film that I'm making to go on my website to explain my new product. And I've got X thousand dollars for you. 
that's going away because this can do that. And I think people are going to feel that. By the way, graphic artists are going to feel it too that do like deliverables lists to go on right. people's social stuff. It's like this workaday journeyman, get it done. This is definitely, the bar is pretty low for what the threshold is. Someone's talking over the whole thing and I just need to feel AI is going to cover that and it's going to get great at it. Don't think for a second, it's not going to be great at it. You, you create a story and, and at some point the AI, like we are working with an AI model right now and what it does is it listens to the dialogue and it takes a good guess about how the emotional graph of the music should track the dialogue. Wow. So that it can actually write a score that would emote with the mood of the words. And we, you know, we've been playing with that for about three months now and it, it's getting good. Is it going to take us six more months or a year? Are there other people working on it? The answer is yes, 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 yes. But at some point you're going to type in a set of words or it's going to listen to a, a voice clone of James Earl Jones reading something or Morgan Freeman reading something. And that's going to create an appropriate soundtrack in a style. Hi, do this in the style of Ennio Marcone. Do this in the style of Hans Zimmer. Do this in the style. And it's just going to do it. Just going to do it. Brave New World. Shelley Palmer, thank you so much for walking us through that. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Let's let's head to Manhattan. You know, I mean, this is something that's been so talked about. And no matter how much we try sometimes to avoid talking about something that's been rehashed over and over again, you know, the fact is that President Trump, former President Trump, Donald Trump, will, will be indicted tomorrow in a Manhattan courtroom. And that's never happened to a former or sitting president in American history. And it's hard to downplay the significance of that. Now, you know, President Trump in, during his four years in office clearly was a norm-shattering leader to say the very least, and maybe this isn't such a huge surprise, but still, um, he will be indicted tomorrow to face these charges. We don't know the charges yet. It hasn't been unsealed, the indictment. They are the investigation uh, that was put in front of the grand jury relates to hush money paid, allegedly, to uh, Stormy Daniels back during the 2016 uh, election campaign, essentially to hush up that affair so that it wouldn't come out in those weeks leading up to the vote. Uh, there was some movement tonight. The judge in this case has ruled that they will not allow courts, uh, cameras, rather, photographers and news cameras inside during the arraignment. No video cameras, but they will let people in to take uh, photos beforehand. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a compromise there. They don't want to have cameras in the room at the time. Uh, the judge uh, wrote this, that this indictment involves a matter of monumental significance, cannot possibly be disputed. Never in the history of the U.S. has a sitting or past president been indicted on criminal charges. Mr. Trump's arraignment has generated unparalleled public interest and media attention, but he didn't want it to be any more uh, circus-like than that. So uh, some photography beforehand, none during the actual event. Of course, I don't know if you were watching. I got up to watch uh, the Space Center announcement this morning of uh, Jeremy Hansen becoming the first Canadian to uh, orbit the moon or will become. I did watch a little bit of the Trump stuff because they followed it. It reminded me of the OJ thing, right? Like they followed his motorcade, leaving Mar-a-Lago to the airport. He got on his private jet, flew to New York, landed in Queens. Of course, he's from Queens. And the whole thing was just a big, you know, it was a big drama thing today. There wasn't really anything going on. He didn't say much. Um, they're bolstering security in New York City, obviously, tonight. Here's what some of those asked on the streets of Manhattan, including Trump supporters and 
Trump opponents had to say today. No, I don't think he's above law, but there's a lot of people, a lot of lawless people in New York City right now that should be arrested. And anybody who's a victim of a crime in New York City that didn't get the justice they deserve should be outraged today at what the DA is using all his resources on. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, he has escaped a lot, but, you know, we, uh, a lot of charges, and I think he's used his power and privilege to get away with a whole lot of things. We're, we're really hopeful that this one will stick and that he will be found guilty and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Yeah, well, a lot of people talking about this tonight. Jay Crable is an associate professor of political science at West Virginia University, and he joins me now. Jay, thank you for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been, I mean, you know, from this side of the border, it's been a remarkable day already. It's been a remarkable few days. But what is the mood like? I mean, this is a, as you watch it unfold, you're reminded again and again that this is a very big deal, both legally and politically in America. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's uh, unprecedented, right? It's It's something that I think a lot of people aren't quite sure what to make of it. At the same time, some people are very sure of what to make of it. I think there's sort of two camps in a way. There's there's people who are kind of befuddled or confused almost of, you know, like wanting to, to know more of what's happening. And then there's a, a another side where there's, I think, a lot of apprehension or, or tension, at least, as to, you know, what's what's going to be coming next? What will we see tomorrow uh, when, you know, we see statements from the mayor of New York and, and from other officials, you know, urging calm they always kind of wonder when people have to urge calm, you know, is there a reason that, you know, we should be uh, concerned? I think that tension is certainly, certainly there. Yeah. I'm I just looking at the way the former president has, has approached this as well. I mean, he, it was his camp that released the itinerary today. I mean, and he's fundraising on the back of it. So clearly he's not whatsoever um, embarrassed by what's about to happen in, in Manhattan tomorrow. If anything, he's been exploiting it. And, and that's a real challenge in, in a polarized country. Definitely. I mean, he is going to use it for all that it's worth, I would suspect. Uh, and, and we've seen reporting on this. And when you think about, who, you know, who is his audience, right? So already launching a campaign for the, the Republican Party's nomination. So there, there's a particular political base that he knows supports him. And they're not going to be put off by this by any stretch. In fact, they may be put off, but not at him. Uh, they'll be put off at Democrats and the and the district attorney and the whole system as it were. I don't suspect we've seen the last of of this and you know, using it throughout the campaign. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if through various tactics. And I think it's worth remembering, like it may be quite some time before anything, if it gets to a courtroom, gets to that stage. So there's a lot of thread here yet to be pulled and and there for him to to use to his advantage, whether it's fundraising or you know, riling up his voters or trying to make life difficult for his political opponents. This is just the beginning, right? Which is, I mean, if you look at it just from a legal standpoint, and you know, we Canadian, the Canadian legal system is a bit different. You know, an indictment is 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 facts are presented to a grand jury. They decide whether there's enough to go on. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward thing, an indictment. And yet in this case, it carries with it all this these extra perceived or real implications. Right. And I think it's important to, to note that, as you described, right, that it's the grand jury, right? So, so a lot of the discussion, it is the case that district attorneys have a lot of influence over, over this process. But there's also, it's still the process. There's a lot of talk of how politicized it is. But this is just, you know, the, the way that the system is designed to work at, at this initial stage. 
that there's evidence that is presented. And then a grand jury of citizens or the peers are going to then evaluate that or have evaluated it and concluded that an indictment is is merited. So, you know, in terms of where, again, where we are in the, the process, it's early innings, if you will, it's early stages, but I think we're going to see how things move from that, right? I mean, it starts to work into the, the, the justice system, right? So now we may see more from the district attorney, even more than we have before. And I, I suspect that with that's going to come a lot of of the political attacks and fundraising tactics that, that we've already been seeing. I mean, you know, given how much strain institutions in America have been under, and maybe maybe we exaggerate this, maybe maybe those who are outside of it exaggerate it, but it feels like America's institutions, whether it be the Supreme Court, whether it be politics in general, that it, there is a huge amount of polarization in the country. Can the, can the system survive this? The, I mean, survive is a big word. How much strain does this put on the institutions even further when all of a sudden you have a whole group of people who say not only was the election stolen, which is, of course, untrue, but, you know, even the most the basic fundamentals of our justice system are somehow being gamed uh, against a certain group? I don't think it's an exaggeration to to see that there is a strain on on the system. And we don't really we've not ever had this before. This is it's unprecedented. So it's not entirely clear how things will progress. It's a little bit peculiar in that, again, this is a local, I mean, it's New York City, so it's not, we're not talking small town here, but it's still, it's it's a local district attorney's office. This isn't the Justice Department in this particular instance. It is worth, again, remembering there are other legal cases dealing with the former president that are still to, to be worked out. But I think you, you hit on an important point and something that, that I think is, is worth considering, which is how this fits into the broader trend of politicizing what feels like almost everything. And I think that's where the, the, the tension or the strain on the system is coming in. The Supreme Court's a good example of that with after the court overturned Roe v. Wade last year and how large swaths of the population connected that with the appointments that were made by the former president and and what that you know connection wasn't very hard for many to make i guess and that we're seeing trust in that institution reach near all-time lows and that this may be filtering down to other parts of the legal system but it's not just the legal system we've seen increasing political attacks or rhetoric when it comes to things like librarians institute like these are basic fundamental yeah yeah, yeah th- things that if you told someone 20 years ago, like we're going after Disney and librarians, you'd kind of been like, what? That doesn't seem like a good idea. Like, is that where we're at? But that's kind of where we're going is everything that you don't like becomes politicized and is, a, is an opportunity to, to be attacked. And, and it is concerning if you start to undermine public confidence, not only in the sort of big institutions, but the little ones that you interact with on a daily basis or maybe not a daily basis, but more frequently, at least, right, that hold your your local community together. And that's, I think, really concerning when you start sort of take the big picture of, you know, what is the what is the state of, of our democracy? What's the state of people's belief in it? And then in the institutions, what can we agree on? And if we can't even at least let the process play out and see, you know, how how the the, the process works, can we trust that Right, that that we can trust our peers, or that if then we have to, if there's an appeal, that that appeal will be held, be heard in an unbiased and neutral way. I mean, this, these are the kinds of things that I think are being called into to question. Uh, that 
they're not, it's not easy to put, put that one back in the box, so to speak. Once you start questioning all of these little pieces that, that hold the system together, it's, comes hard to know where you where you stop doing that. Uh, Jay, I was looking at this, you know, the, you know, you can go on and google it. There's a long list of former leaders around the world in very what we would consider to be very stable democracies, France, Portugal, Italy, uh, South Korea, you know, Argentina, Peru, who've been indicted in the past. It's just very it's obviously unprecedented in the US. Why is that? Why have former presidents been so untouchable? I imagine, you know, maybe they're all maybe none of them have done anything wrong, but uh it certainly goes against the grain uh, what's <laughs> happening tomorrow. Well, we'd, we'd certainly like to think that, right? That that uh, that that was the case. And I think there's there's a couple of of aspects here, and and one of them is you know, if it weren't for Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation in the same same light. So you know, there are some some historical precedents that weren't exactly fitting this mold, but were very much in the same kind of of light. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, I think, a couple of aspects. One is, I suspect, uh, the sort of decentralized nature of much of, of the, the system in the United States. So, again, thinking about this specific case, and if you think about the, the broader set of, of legal issues facing the former president, right, you have this case in Manhattan, then you have a case in Georgia, right, and you have these different jurisdictions, and I think in some ways that can present difficulties, whether it comes to uh, to resources or just a willingness to pursue something if there were, in fact, reason to. Again, I don't have a special insight into to who who that might apply to, but I think just generally that that's something worth noting. And then there's a long norm. There's sort of a longstanding norm of being very, very leery going after former presidents. And I think in part for the reasons we were just discussing earlier, which is that it, it poses a sort of unprecedented or would present an unprecedented challenge to the system. How do you go about doing this? And, and you mentioned other countries that have, have done this and they had to work through that process. And so I think there's a concern on the part of who wants to be the first, who wants to have to try and, you know, yeah. be the first one to, to, to do this, knowing that there are considerable risks, right? A former president, that's no, that's, that's no, uh, you know, minor figure. You're going to be in the spotlight. And you better get it right. I mean, I think if that's probably part of the mindset, if you're going to do it, then you better make sure you you don't miss because yeah. otherwise it's going to look that much worse. And the two party system in America clearly, obvi- I mean, it sets it up as adversarial. So if one, if the leader of a former party is then indicted when the current party's in power, or the other party's in power, it's kind of hard to escape, regardless of how untrue it is. It's kind of hard to escape the optics, right? I mean, that's part of the issue. What are you going to look for tomorrow? What will you be looking out for? Well, I think part of what everyone's going to be be wanting to to see is just what is the reaction? You know, are there demonstrations or or do people actually take to the streets as it were? What what will that look like? For a lot of us, it's what are the what we know more about the specific charges. So, you know, what is the what is the framework that the district attorney is working from? Will we learn more about that? Again, as we're just talking about, you know, if you're going to be the first to do this, you probably want to get it right. And so I think a lot of people are are wanting to see, we have speculation, we have an idea of what the arguments will be in the charges, but to see maybe a little bit more of, of the direction that that, that that goes. And then I think the, the political side of this is what reaction do we get from himself? So how you know forceful of a response, if you will, in terms of whether that's through social media uh, or other other outlets, but also from other 
other candidates. So there's a, a former governor of Arkansas that just announced he was running right. uh, for the Republican nomination this weekend. And he basically was, you know, we need to move on from this. I don't know that that's going to be the majority view within the party, but, you know, how do they respond? Is there a rallying around Trump sort of think about the candidates or potential candidates running against him in the upcoming primaries? What do they say and how close do they want to be to him or how far away do they want to be from him? Well, Jay Crable, uh, it's going to be an interesting day. Thank you so much for your perspective on what it could be, what it could mean. Very happy to share. Thank you for having me. It all really started when I picked up a black walnut. You can really make ink from just about anything. New York rust, carbonized peach pits, an antique Roman nail. The ink that I make is alive, it's unpredictable. It's fugitive, it's kind of on the run. I started sending my ink out to artists that I love all around the world. What these materials do in other people's hands, how they bring them to life. Well, that, that's the voice of Joshua Logan, who's one of the most renowned ink makers in the world. He's Canadian, he lives in Toronto, and ink is his thing. Now, we may not think much about ink these days, given how... Uh, computerized the world has become. Uh, of course, ink still does a lot these days, but for a very long time, it was it. The history of humanity in many ways was written in ink. Um, the film that he features in is called The Color of Ink. You just heard a snippet of the trailer for it. It was written and directed by Brian Johnston. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last September. And here's how it's described. It uncovers the medium's mystery and power through the eyes of Jason Logan, a visionary Toronto ink maker working with ingredients forged in the wild, weeds, berries, bark, flowers, rocks, rust. He makes ink from just about anything. And he sends his inks around the world from cartoonists to a Japanese calligrapher. And the inks themselves take on a life of their own. Now, I tend to be a bit messy. Uh, so I, I've had, you know, fountain pens over the years, but I've never really found a love for them. But my mom's a big fountain, fountain pen user and has really nice handwriting. She's left-handed, has really nice handwriting. And I've always been a huge admirer of ink in that sense and just looking at it and the colors it makes. And, you know, you see a lot of calligraphy if you're in Asia. There's so many really cool things about ink. But I hadn't given it much thought until I watched this film, this documentary. Um, and Jason Logan just gives you an incredible walk through the history of it, how he goes about making it, how you find those colors, how different things create different colors. And Jason Logan, uh, creative director, artist, and author of Make Ink, A Forager's Guide to Natural Ink Making, and featured in that NFB documentary I was mentioning, The Color of Ink, joins me now. Jason, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. This is such an interesting thing that you found yourself doing, and it was interesting to figure out where it all began. And I gather there was the time you fell in love with color as a child, and then the time you fell in love with ink, which happened a bit later. Yeah. The, I mean, the falling in love with color really was about growing up on the West Coast and following my big sister around who would, you know, forage in the tide pools and pick up pine cones. And I just like adored her and I kind of learned how to see the world with my hands and eyes in a really forager way. So that's right. the sort of like, I guess the color origins. And then the, the ink origins really happened in New York city where I was working as an illustrator 
doing stuff for the New York Times and other publications. And I always loved using ink. You know, it makes that nice fine line. But then if you add a little water, it becomes all kind of washy and poetic. So I love that sort of dual nature of ink. And in New York, I found a bottle of black walnut ink. And I used it up. I loved it. I went back to the art supply store to get more. And, you know, it was some small batch thing. And I just, I couldn't find it again. Fast forward, like, I don't know, maybe three or four years. My first child is born. I start getting interested in like non-toxic art supplies. And I see on my way to work, I see a black walnut tree. And uh, this light goes off and I'm like, oh my God, like, black walnut ink like it it really does grow on trees and here's this tree right here you know i collected the well i had to wait until the black walnuts were sort of ripe and then i collected them threw them in a pot boiled them up made this beautiful rich sort of mahogany colored brown ink and you know packaged it up sent it off to a bunch of artists and illustrators that i'd worked with and thus the the ink making the, the origin story born. the origin story yeah. so to speak it's it's remarkable yeah. because the history of ink is so is so integral to the history of the written word to the history of knowledge and it goes back a very long time and in, in taking those black walnuts you were simply replicating something that had been done for millennia yeah i mean forget forget my origin story like the origin imagine a world before ink, you know, a world where if you had ideas or mathematical formulas or a poem, you'd just have to memorize it and tell people about it. So the, you know, the minute that you could add, well, it was soot, water, and a kind of glue binder, you add those together, you make letter forms, and all of a sudden, you're able to, you know, put stuff on paper and really remember it, transport it over spaces, you know, like you can write a brilliant piece of work and die and it can be read generations after you're dead. Like it's, ink is so fundamental to our world now and kind of to the whole evolution of humans, really. Yeah, you've, you've said it's durable. It's a, it's a durable record. And that in itself has sort of shaped history in a way that sometimes we don't think about. Yeah, it's it's really durable, and at, at the same time, it's it's um. If you take it back even another step, sort of before ink as we know it, and you think of those people making markings on the cave walls, like they're not even sort of pre people, you know, making markings on cave walls. There's something about getting your hands dirty and expressing yourself through through making a mark, you know. That's a deep, old, fundamental thing that we do as humans. It is. And and another thing that's been fascinating about, about your journey, too, is just, I mean, for, for so people understand what ink is, right? I mean, I think that's what, what is most, because a lot of us just think of ink as something that emerges from a pen and is made in industrial quantities. But the way you approach it is that there is color in everything and that around us, whether it be, you know, nails or, or, or plants or, or acorns, and you find it and then you, and you work on it. So what, what, comprises ink what are the ingredients to a good ink super simple you need pigment some kind of color water which is the vehicle you know if you're making printing ink it could be oil it could be some other vehicle but let's say color water and then the third ingredient is a binder which is some sort of glue that connects the color to the water and allows you to really make markings with it 
and it's a it's a living thing. I mean, in in the documentary that I watched, you can tell that that each batch ha- takes on a life of its own. Yeah, I mean, when I when I first started out making ink, I got a lot of like you know sort of deep pen nerds contacting me asking for very specialized inks, and you know the black ink that I make is is very um, archival, long lasting, works great in a pen, but most of my inks are kind of break all the rules of the sort of ink that you'd normally put in the pen. You know, they, they actually change color. They crystallize. They, sometimes they get darker. Sometimes they get lighter. Sometimes they kind of, you know, break up into little pieces. I think that's what the film does so beautifully is sort of shows in technicolor the little details of ink kind of doing its thing, you know, like it's got a mind of its own. It's uh well, as you say, it's alive. Like I, that's the kind of ink I make is is living ink. And and you find it, you find those pigments in such fascinating spots. I mean, at one point you were talking about uh, nails, uh, railway, t- you know, railway nails, uh, spikes, uh, you know, sort of rust, uh, New York rust, peach pits. I mean, there was a whole cornucopia of things that you look to when you forage to find those things. How do you do that? It's rooted in history. So there are sort of traditional things that make ink and color. So I am often looking for, you know, iron's really important. Uh, Certain kinds of nuts are really important. Certain uh, roots, like there are sort of historically important ingredients that I just know, you know, through the sort of old recipes will make a kind of ink. So that's, you know, that's one piece of it. The other piece is that I can essentially make ink out of anything. So uh, uh, really my only constraint is that I like to be able to find it at my feet. So I don't order away for exotic supplies. I, I find the things at my feet and I, you know, I use that sort of fundamental um, recipe, which is it needs water. It needs some kind of colorant and it needs a binder to connect the two together. And when you've kind of got that initial recipe, you would be shocked by how many different beautiful strange colors you can make like i know we're on radio but if you and i were together in my studio or if you and i went for a walk down the street or if any of your listeners came on a workshop with me half an hour and we could be making ink out of pretty much anything that you find uh jason this ink has found its way right around the world into all kinds of the hands of all kinds of very interesting people and part of it has been been of your own effort you've gone out to seek people who you think would enjoy it and then people come to you as well who are some of the people who've uh who've used your ink well you know after i wrote my book make ink someone told me like you've got to have a hashtag you know and i was like what okay fine i'll do a hashtag and i did the hashtag making through that hashtag i probably met like a thousand people all over the world doing stuff that in many cases goes way beyond what i've ever imagined it could do so you know i think one of the early people that contacted me was um an artist in rome named marta abbott and at first she just wanted to use some of my inks and then she started sending me sending me ingredients and you know by sort of like year four or five of us collaborating she was you know making her own ink in the carrara marble factory and sending me this sort of white dust 
which I would then, you know, recombine in new ways and make an ink that then got sent to a an amazing Islamic uh, calligrapher in London uh, named Saroya Saeed. So, you know, there's two amazing artists right there that I've met that that do play a role in the film. There's an incredible calligrapher, uh, Koji Kakanuma, who makes these sort of wall-sized calligraphic works where, you know, he's dipping what looks like a kind of oversized mop into a giant bucket of ink and, you know, making these sort of enormous, like, truck-sized single-letter characters. So, you know, he's used my ink. You know, as you say, it's it's magical what ink has allowed me to... Um, the people that it's opened me up to, the experimentation that it's allowed me to do with other people. It's, um, you know, I started out thinking I was going to be an ink seller. And more and more, I find that I am, I don't know, more like almost like a conduit for the possibilities of ink, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Robert Crumb, who people may know, is someone else uh, that that has that has used your ink. I mean, there's a lot of people out there. Do you feel like? I mean, when one looks around at the the sort of the all the things we talk about these days, the advent of artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, it feels like ink is from another time. But but clearly, it still has a place here too. Do you ever look out onto the horizon and, and worry that it that it is a bit of a vanishing art? I don't know. You know, like I, I think. In one sense, I've taken advantage of its vanishing quality in the sense that as there's less and less, you know, as, as we go towards a more and more sort of digital cultural world, I guess, you know, there's just less and less people who are doing handwriting and picking up pens and all of that. Yeah, the, the fact that the printed word has been sort of diminishing a little bit has, I think, made ink where it does get used sort of more more sort of valuable and special, you know, like how, when's the last time you received a handwritten letter in the mail? You know, when you do receive one, it feels really, really special. So in that sense, the, the disappearance of ink has been, has sort of worked to my advantage as an ink maker. At the same time, I feel like it's not just a kind of historical old quirky thing that some people do. Like I truly believe that ink represents a future that we we kind of need as humans how so i think that if you if you imagine yourself as like a kid like playing in a mud puddle and using a stick a blackened stick or something and scratching it on a rock or you know throwing bits of greenery into a bucket and kind of mixing it up like a potion like if you imagine that kind of childlike glee that you get from kind of using your hands and just imaginatively making marks to me that sort of visceral handmade childlike glee is exactly what we need in order to sort of survive as empathetic humans like i just think that when you've got a supercomputer in your pocket and all of your interactions are through your phone and technology pervades every sort of aspect of your life i I think the ability to walk outside, start picking stuff up, fiddling around and making your own mark in a tactile way that uses your hands and heart. Like to me, that's the future. If we're going to survive as, as, as humans, you know, when you, when you put it that way, 
Uh, <laughs> uh, the last que- the last question. Was that, too, was that too dramatic? No, no, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, the last question for you, uh, Jason, is there any effective way to get ink <laughs> off your off your hands? Because you must know what it's like to be ink stained. Uh, what do you do? Oh my God. Okay. There's a product and you should totally like, maybe, maybe you can do this and have, this was one of your ads in the, in the radio show, but there's a product called kiss off and it's like, it just gets ink out of anything. It right. comes in this form of like a stick kind of, and it is just, you get it mostly at the art supply store. It's called kiss off and it is amazing with removing stains, which, well, and I get a lot of stains. No doubt. That's good to know. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's head to Japan now. I find this a really interesting story because this has been going on for a very long time. Japan's population has been aging at a really quite frightening rate for quite a while now. The birth rate is extremely low. There's very little immigration and the population, they have a very you know long life expectancy as well. The population there is also aging very quickly. This is putting remarkable strain on everything in Japan, uh, specifically social programs and so on, but also employment numbers and the like. Here's a stat for you. Um, We found out uh, last month that the country had seen 7,999, 728 births in 2022. Why is that important? It's the first time it has ever dipped below 800,000, according to the Ministry of Health there. Uh, the number of births in the country is have by halved in the past 40 years. They had 1.5 million births in 1982 and less than 800,000 in 2022. Um, they also reported a record high for post-war deaths last year at more than 1.58 million. So deaths have now outper- outpaced births in Japan for more than a decade. It's a huge problem for the world's third largest economy. They're now trying to do something about it because, you know, there's pension funds to, there's pensions to fund, healthcare, all the other things that we know in this country as our population also ages. Although in this country, a huge influx of immigration, more than a million people for the first time ever last year, is helping with that. It's not the same in Japan. They've been pretty closed off to immigration over the years. So here they are with this demographic time bomb on their hands, and it feels like it has stopped ticking that it's ready to go. What can they do about it? Joining me now with more of this is Margarita Estevez-Abe. She's now an associate professor of political science uh, at, at Syracuse University, but grew up in Tokyo. She specializes in Japan, and she joins me now. Margarita, thanks for your time tonight. Very nice to be here. Thank you, Ben. This has been talked about now for many, many years. Japan, we know, has an aging population, a very low birth rate, but suddenly it's making headlines again, and it seems to have entered something like a crisis period. What's changed in the past little while that means that we're reading about this so much once again? Okay, so uh, so this has been going on quite some time. Uh, so the first time the Japanese were shocked about the declining birth rate, 1989. So what's happening in Japan right now is that it's now its population aging has just entered very dangerous zone. So whatever the government does right now, it's not going to be able to reverse this. And Japan is a very, very old society. So uh, it's almost one in 10 Japanese people is above the age of 80. So so in other words, the entire way the system is set up to provide for social services and all those things that Japan does and to continue to fuel its very large and successful economy are dying, essentially. 
Well, the Japanese economy has not been successful for some time,、mm-hmm. and demographic aging is part of it. The, the ruling party has been in denial to face this, really. So that's just part of the problem. But the latest numbers, the, the, the big fall in the number of babies born in Japan, so this has really been a wake up call. But the wake up call, I mean, this is probably the 10th wake up call <laughs> or 20th wake up call. My so, guess is that they're not going to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I mean there's been some stuff. They're, they're going to open an agency to look into it. Feels like a bit late to be doing that. They're going to try and offer some incentives. But I gather,、uh, both historically, demographically, financially, There's a lot in place in Japan that, that sort of dissuades people from having families. It's expensive to raise a child there, and there isn't much support. Yes, correct. You know, for instance, in the US, the US government offers public, free public education all the way through to the end of senior high school. In Japan, until the first opposition party that won the election, so this is back in 2009, until this party,、uh, Promised free senior high school education, the Japanese government wouldn't even cover the cost of senior high school education. So you can just figure that the government wasn't really、uh, providing services or benefits to,、uh, to families that were raising children. The Japanese government shares very little of the cost of education of the kids. On top of sort of expensive housing, small housing, there's many factors coming in, but all of it seems to combine to. Prevent people from having bigger families. And that's very hard to reverse, as we've seen in many other countries. Correct. And not only that, what the Japanese government does is it just makes it very difficult for、uh, families to have the second earner. So the taxation on the social security system is just set up to discourage even highly educated wives of men who are employed in companies to earn more than $10,000 a year. So, I mean, recognizing all of this, it seems incredible that Japan hasn't moved faster to try to address this. And、I've, I guess the elephant in the room in Japan and has always been its attitude towards immigration. So, it has an aging population. It's not supporting、uh, higher birth rates amongst its, its population because it doesn't offer proper support. And it's been very resistant to try to replace that gap with immigration. Correct. But Japan has been just changing slowly. They still don't want to talk about immigration. Uh, the term immigrant is almost a taboo.、Mm-hmm. But in the form of trainees, Japan has been just bringing in a lot of foreigners to,、uh, to work in construction sites, in agriculture, in small businesses. And also, lots of people have entered Japan as, on student visas actually to provide cheap labor. And in 2018, the LDP government has just finally overhauled. The immigration system, but still they don't call it the immigration system. Right. It's, I mean, watching from the outside,、uh, you know, the, the leaders were saying this week that essentially they're in a crisis situation, that they will not be able, Japan as it exists today, will not be able to survive with this demographic bomb blowing up in its face. Yes, true. And we have known this for a very long time. So looking back in the 1990s, Both conservative politicians and the opposition politicians, they were really just paying attention to this issue. And in the 1990s, there was a competition between these two parties to just provide more for the younger generation who were just raising children. So、uh, when there was a political competition or electoral competition, 
Japan was trying to do something. The politicians and the government, they just knew this was coming. And they knew this as early as the early 1990s. So it it still boggles the mind. Why not do something about it? You know it's coming. So why not do something about it or try to do something about it, try to do more about it? Yes. So very unfortunate for Japan. So in the 1990s, the Japanese economic bubble burst. That's right. Mm -hmm. So when there was a labor shortage, Japanese big corporations, which were so accustomed to only hiring university educated men, were forced to hire women. So some changes started happening during the economic boom. So this is we're just talking about the late 1980s. And in the early 1990s, electoral competition was just forcing all parties to just focus on uh, helping uh, younger families. But then when the bubble burst, the labor shortage disappeared. And big corporations who had been interested in hiring women just stopped hiring women. So the clock got rewinded back to zero again. And I imagine Japanese companies, like all other companies, began to globalize too, so they could offshore some of their labor problems and put them in other places. Exactly, exactly. So the good jobs started disappearing from Japan. So it's not just gender inequality, but the wages for the younger generation haven't been growing so there is uh, greater economic insecurity. And, you know, with such an old sort of demographic composition, now younger people are just paying more and more, well, bigger and bigger shares of their income to pay taxes and social security contributions to just sustain the, the old generation. When we look at this, though, from a broader perspective, Margarita, it feels like this is something, I mean, Japan is sort of at the forefront of this for many reasons, but many other countries are struggling with some of these issues with low birth rates, aging populations, and Japan's sort of the canary in the coal mine here. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Japanese total fertility rate, it's still much higher than that in South Korea. So South Korea is just going through an even more rapid demographic aging. So right now, their demographic composition, it's still younger than the Japanese population, but they're catching up really, really fast. You know, you've been just mentioning the latest shocking number that the Japanese government released. So this is uh, for the first time, the number of birth in Japan just went below 800,000. And just to give you an idea, in 1970, there were 2 million babies born in Japan. Right. So not even 40% at this point. And not only this, that the Japanese government, according to their forecast, the number of births in Japan was going to drop to this level. They forecasted this, but they thought that this this would happen 11 years later. Right. So in, tw- in 2034, not, not yes. 2023. Yes. Again, though, I mean, this is a, a bit of a, a warning to other countries who are tr- struggling with similar demographic issues and wondering about immigration and how to replace and how to bring more people in. I mean, here in Canada, we've been uh, very aggressive about trying to attract immigration because of similar demographic issues. Uh, but it feels like this is a wake-up call for a lot of different countries. Indeed. I think that uh, just very soon we will be just competing for uh, bringing young care workers to look after the old. The Japanese government is still not aware of this. And this care labor is just going to just come from abroad. And now will Japan be an attractive place to go? Just probably not, because wages have already started declining so badly in Japan. Uh, whereas Canada has been very successful in attracting people because of higher wages, 
Australia is now just sucking in labor from Japan. Many y- young Japanese people. Really? Go to- yes. So, for instance, if you were a nurse in Japan and if you just went to Australia, your、uh, salary would double. Wow. Yeah, it just feels like, like、um, again, it feels like looking at a country like Japan, who we all remember back to sort of the late 70s and the 80s and the Japanese economic miracle and all the things that happened back then. It's been very strange from the outside to watch a country essentially begin to wither away.、Uh, and that, I mean, not, that, not to exaggerate, but it feels like demographically, at least, that's what's happening in Japan. They no longer have the workers there to be able to support an aging population, not to mention what that means for the future. Yes. And the country really is withering away during the, the Japanese bubble in the, the, the 1980s when it almost seems like、uh, Japan, Japanese economy was just going to be to dominate the world and the Japanese products were going to dominate the, the global market. During that time, Japan had lots of young people with disposable income. Who were just willing to、uh, spend their money. So that was just part of the, the Japanese strength.、Um, but by the time the economy moved to,、um, you know, moved out of this, well, maybe Japan could have just kept up to,、uh, maybe Sony could have turned into something like Apple if the Japanese population just continue, continued to be,、uh, be youthful. But you see, once you just lose、um, young consumers, the disposable income of young consumers just starts to decline. It really just takes the air out of the balloon, which is the national economy. So, any lessons here for other countries as they watch this happen? Invest in childcare, invest in gender equality, in labor market practices that are much more inclusionary. So, just learn from all the mistakes that Japan made. So, which was to deny gender equality, just go on denial on diversity. What they just tried to do was to uphold this just highly male chauvinistic societal system. When they started seeing signs as early as the beginning of the, the 1990s that this wasn't working, they just turned their eyes away and didn't really face the reality. Well, they're staring at it now. Margarita Estevez Abe, thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to meet you. We've been talking about food that you've eaten, maybe something strange over the years.、Um, we just had a text in, text in saying, My son won Top Chef Canada in 2019 and was living in Tofino. Well, congratulations to your son from the get go. We caught and prepared sea cucumber. Also, a few years ago, I was picking Moro mushrooms in the Northwest Territories. They, yes, yeah, barbecuing beaver tail for Father's Day. They consider it a delicacy. So, Moro's beaver tail. Not the doughy kind in Ottawa, the real kind, and sea cucumber and tofino. Wow, that's a, a list of really interesting stuff. We've arrived at the time, as I've been mentioning since the beginning of the show, we've arrived at the time to serve up the story of the woolly mammoth meatball.、Um, you can add it to the long list of food cooked up by advances in science. It has been、uh, created by a cultivated meat company, resurrecting. Uh, the flesh of the long extinct woolly mammoth through DNA. It's quite an interesting process how it was done, why it was done.、Um, it wasn't, I mean, it's been widely touted as having been a remarkable marketing coup, but there were many other things around it that were meant to raise awareness about something quite different or something related but different. And joining me now from Sydney, Australia, is George Pepu. He's CEO of Val Foods, and、uh, they are the creators of the Mammoth Meatball. George, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. 
So, I mean, obviously, I, I don't know how uh, much you were expecting the amount of attention this has got, but it was. All, <laughs> I was reading somewhere that that it is the marketing coup of 2023 so far. So, congratulations on that front. But where did the idea come from? So, we're a, we're a cultured meat company, and our whole approach has been: how do we invent entirely new meats that people that really love eating meat choose selfishly over uh, regular animal products? And a few years ago, we were talking about this and saying, well, how do we get this message out? How do we start a global conversation and get the whole world talking? And my co-founder, Tim, um, by pure coincidence, started talking to someone from an advertising agency in the Netherlands who pitched us on the idea originally for a dodo nugget. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, here we are about three years later um, with a, 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 a... what was, to be honest, a bit of a silly stunt that went totally out of control and global. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just that when you see it, you're like, I wonder what a mammoth meatball would look like in your mind's <laughs> eye. And sure enough, you you look at it, you're like, it might look like that. It was massive. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> how did you go about, I mean, a, a dodo would have been tough, right? But how did you go about, uh, <laughs> because there is no DNA, right? That's the Isn't that the problem? Well, there, there is a, um, so both the mammoth and the dodo, uh, there's this entire category, I think they're called um, paleogeneticists or something, where they essentially right. go and they find tiny fragments of DNA from fossils or uh, frozen specimens or preserved specimens of these now extinct species and reconstruct the genome. So we're able to take from the mammoth genome the, the uh, slightly incomplete gene for myoglobin, which is an iron-containing protein that uh, carries a lot of the flavor and color of meat, and then reconstruct that and put it in some cells that we already had. So there's a surprisingly large number of genomes from now extinct species, which you can just go on the internet and find and look at and you know, copy and paste segments of if you so choose. Wow. And then you 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 sort of uh, back that up with with elephant DNA. Is that right? That's right. So we filled in a couple of gaps with elephant DNA, which is the closest living, uh, closest living relative. So uh, it's something I never thought um, I never thought would uh, garner so much curiosity. I never thought I'd say the words elephant DNA so many times in a week. Um, but here <laughs> we are. <laughs> so how do you go about actually creating the pro? I mean, this is what you yes. do, but how do you go about creating the product? <laughs> so in this case, um, once we had inserted that mammoth myoglobin gene into the sheep cells, then there's a lot of validation to make sure it's in there and it's actually producing the uh, mammoth myoglobin on top of the cells. And then there's growing lots and lots of them. So we used a couple of different methods, uh, sort of our small scale prototyping methods to produce around 200 grams of that uh, sheep cell containing that mammoth myoglobin. Um, then we mixed it with a couple of other ingredients and stuck it together to make that really big meatball that you see. And then as one does when they uh, resurrect an extinct protein, um, we wanted to preserve that so it could live on in a museum in the Netherlands forever. Um, and so we then had to work out how on earth do you preserve a meatball, a large meatball in order to have it on display in a museum, which led to uh, one of our scientists and a couple of our manufacturing team working at how do they weigh this down in a bath of resin to make sure that it didn't pop up and float away and not get coated. So um, all the normal stuff that you expect to experience working at a cultured meat startup. Yeah, no, no kidding. I, I gather, I mean, this is another question you've answered a million times, no doubt, but no one tasted said meatball. That's right. So we... Uh, I wanted to taste it, uh, and you know, a couple of others on the team wanted to taste it, um, but we ended up deciding to prioritize first having that example to live in the museum, 
that said, we still do have the cells. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they're stored down and readily available. And so uh, watch this space. Uh, we may be changing that in the very near future. Interesting. And you've tried, I mean, you've looked at other animals too, right? Sort of other more right. obscure uh, animals. Tell me about some of those. So we've grown around 50 different species. We started off with kangaroo. We've grown everything from crocodile to alpaca to buffalo to uh, wallaby and a bunch of very odd marine species. Um, uh, I've eaten probably more species of cultured meat than anyone else on the planet. Um, and there's this really surprising difference in the experience of consuming, but also in the uh, nature of how those cells grow, depending on which species they come from. Um, so there's a lot of companies around the world that have been working on beef, chicken and pork, but we always took the mm-hmm. view that there's a much more crazy and out there proposition of, well, what are the best cells? What, what can become the you know domesticated workhorse of the cellular agriculture world? Um, let's go and explore nature to find that. Uh, and that's been a big focus in the, over the last four years as a company of which are the cells that we want to be producing and growing. Um, and so they all taste very good. Um, some taste better than others, uh, but they all grow at very, very different rates and have very, very different difficulties of scaling up. And that's one of the um, you know, deep veins of research and development we've been working on, which is what's the best way to take cells and scale them up into food that can become abundant enough to be available in supermarkets around the world. It's, it would make perfect sense, though, because I was reading that the first one sold to diners would be Japanese quail, which is which is an, right. a rare thing. Where it would be, <laughs> it seems only logical to compete there to get people used to it, as opposed to trying to compete with the. As you've mentioned, I was watching your TED talk earlier in Sydney. The vast industry that is chicken, beef, and pork. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It, and I, it's I, for... Yeah. Go ahead. I'll go ahead. No, go ahead. I was the, so that that was my st- that was the statement. Tell me, so Japanese quail, something like Japanese quail makes perfect sense versus try my chicken nugget, for instance. And a big driver of this is um, if you eat meat like I do, you've had that experience of eating chicken, beef, or pork so many times that there's uh, this incredible tacit knowledge you've built up in your head. And I need to deliver a product that perfectly replicates all the good and the bad parts of that experience. Otherwise, all of that knowledge that you have um, screams at you and says, this is wrong, you shouldn't eat this. Whereas something like Japanese quail, fortunately, most people don't eat that too often. And so as long as we make something which tastes good and we describe it accurately to you about the types of flavors and textures you're about to experience, that's a very, very positive experience for you to have. And so that's one one of the big drivers for us of not trying to replicate things that people are already experts in. But the long-term view is that meat is going to become like breakfast cereal. Uh, And what I mean there, uh, because that's a pretty outrageous statement, what I mean there is most breakfast cereals and in fact, most food products in the supermarket, you buy on the basis of a brand that describes Mm -hmm. how something should taste. Um, Cheerios are not a real physical construct. There's no Cheerio plant to go to. Um, True. uh, But there's this brand that's existed in the market and you as a consumer understand what it's going to taste like and why you'd eat it because of your experience with that food in the past. And we think the same is going to happen to meat. And so Japanese quail for us is just an introduction, just an entree um, to inventing entirely new meats that we sell as brands and mixing and matching species to create food experiences that no animal could produce. And you you pointed out, I mean, the, the larger picture here, and you, you've pointed out in many different venues long before the mammoth meatball came rolling along, is that this is ultimately about there not being... They're not the, the meat consumption has risen to such an extent around the world, and as the world gets progressively richer, more and more people consume more and more meat. And I think you used an Australian example, but it's simply unsustainable. 
for us to eat, for all of us to eat that much meat. It just doesn't make any sense. So there has to be some other way of going about doing this. And, and this is one of them. Absolutely. And it's, um, there are some very um, sustainable and ethical production systems. A lot of Australian ruminant farming of cattle and sheep can be done very sustainably and ethically. Uh, similarly, I know there's a lot of very high quality meat produced in Canada, um, but you can't scale that. You can't put 10 times the amount of animals in that same land and produce meat in that same high quality, sustainable and ethical way. And so you end up with this, uh, as demand grows, increasing proportions going to factory farming. And so we've always seen this as how do we take the growth out of that industry? The goal is not to wipe out farmers at all. It's quite the opposite. It's the, to make sure that the farmers that do produce very high quality and sustainable foods have a market, um, but really try to take the growth away from factory farms um, by making things that people will augment their diet with instead of animal products. Right. And, and you mentioned it's because a lot of us tend to fall into the trap of eating the same. We consume the same stuff. Uh, you were mentioning, you exactly. know, even, even our, our, our forebears, you know, our grandparents would have eaten a far wider variety of meat than we do today. Exactly. And that's because we've industrialized. There's a very, very limited set of species, which you can industrialize uh, in the types of farming that we do predominantly today. And that's really coalesced around beef, chicken, and pork um, over the last uh, only about 50 or 60 years. It's a relatively recent advent. And partly this is looking back and saying, well, I want more choice. I want more variety. Um, just personally, I have so much variety and pretty much you know, I can buy one of 10 different categories of apples if I choose uh, or you know, hundreds of different examples of packaged foods. But when I go to the meat section, I really have three choices. Um, mm -hmm. what, that's weird. That's, that's a weird counter trend to the rest of our food system. Is this a technology that can change that? Yeah. What are some of the barriers still in the way of of, of what you're doing? Uh, I gather it, it is a grow, like so many things, it is growing rapidly, but it, it's growing. No pun intended. That's right. So it's um, <laughs> uh, the biggest barriers for us right now, the most immediate one is regulatory approvals. Um, we're in the midst of Singapore, Australia, and the US. And uh, if all goes well, around the middle of next year, we'll be able to sell uh, cultured quail in all of those markets. And then there's a lot on us internally. Uh, there's a lot of procuring the right equipment, engineering it in a way which allows it to be cleanable and scalable and, uh, and, and operated efficiently and automated. Um, and then getting that landed and installed in our facilities and capitalizing all of it. So there's a lot that's on us right now. Um, the regulators have been wonderful and very consultative, but right now most of the work is on us um, to answer their questions quickly, to ensure that all the safety testing is really, really scientifically valid, um, and then to make sure that we have the production capacity as soon as we get that approval so that you and everyone else that wants to try it can pop into a local restaurant and have that experience and start to add that to your diet if it's something you enjoy. Well, certainly the, the mammoth meatball has has achieved its purpose, right? In, in your sense of starting a conversation about this, what, what now? Right. What, what what next? Uh, we have we have a couple of things in the pipeline which are uh, possibly even weirder, um, and so it's uh, forgebyvow.com if you want to follow along. Um, we're going to be doing a couple more drops this year in a similar way, but for the first time, uh, average consumers will have the chance to try them, um, or at least in the markets where they're available, will have the, the chance to try them. So um, if you're interested in seeing what comes next, forgebyvow.com, but I can promise you they're not going to be boring. Uh, they will be uh, hopefully even weirder and more exciting than the Mammoth Meatball. And if you ever happen to be in the Netherlands, I gather you can drop by and, said, and see said meatball if you want. That's right. It's uh, I can't remember the name of the science museum off the top of my head, but it is going to be living in a museum over in the Netherlands. And uh, uh, I, I need to pop over there at some point this year and uh, 
uh, see it in the flesh. I haven't seen it since it was being, uh, since it was sitting on someone's desk uh, after having been prepared for shipment. So it's a very unceremonious <laughs> you, departure from here. <laughs> did you ship it? Did you? Did, how, how do you ship? Oh, we shipped what did you put on? What I, did you, what was, did you put, put on the customs declaration? <laughs> uh, we actually in, imported it into the Netherlands as a museum prop, uh, which is right. accurate. Uh, but, yes. Uh, it was funny sort of seeing it being packed up and I was asking the team, I was like, Oh, why are we, why are we posting this? Why don't we just fly it over there? And they, no one was game to take it in their carry on luggage. And they thought it would be easier to ship it across. Don't really know how you'd explain that to a customs declaration of like, Oh no, this no. Oh, it's just, it's a, it's complicated what it is. Let's, let's just leave it, it at that. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Um, George, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful uh, evening. <laughs>